0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Pico Iyer, essayist, author, travel writer, and thinker, has a unique perspective on many things. His physical domain ranges from California, where he lived as a child, and England, where he studied to Cuba, North Korea, and Ethiopia, which he visited, and Japan, where he resides. His mental domain knows no limiting boundaries. In this interview with Wharton's Associate Dean and Chief Information Officer Deirdre Woods, and knowledge at Wharton, Iyer spoke on an unusual topic, the value of silence and stillness amid the rush of business. If we spend too much time in the MTV rhythm, says Iyer, we won't be able to cultivate the parts of us that need more slowness. Iyer has written several books, including most recently, The Man Within My Head. Uh, Pico here, thank you so much for joining us
1: today.
2: I'm delighted to be talking to you again.
1: So, uh, chronic, distract- chronic distractibility seems to have become part of our lives. Uh, what do you think are the causes and what are the consequences for individuals and organizations?
2: The causes are just the acceleration of the world, the bombardment of information that comes in on all of us at the moment, uh, increasing with each year, and just, uh, ironically, our methods of communication. And somehow the more ways of connecting and communicating we have, the more sometimes inundated we are, and the harder it may be for us to communicate deeply. And so I, I suppose I feel almost as if many of us are on an accelerating roller coaster that none of us quite wanted or asked to get onto, but now we don't know quite how to get off. And uh, so I suppose my image of the modern world is of teenagers uh, joyriding in a Porsche at 160 miles an hour around blind curves, which is the excitement of it, but also sometimes the unsettling uh, quality. So um, the more time-saving gadgets we have in our lives, sometimes it seems the less time we have.
1: Right. Uh, now, what do you think is the antidote to this condition and, and how, have you, how have you dealt with it in your own life?
2: Uh, I think all of us, more and more of us at least, are trying to unplug and trying to consciously to take uh, practical methods to disconnect. And I think almost everybody I know has this sense of overdosing on... Information and getting dizzy and living at post-human speeds now. And so nearly everybody I know does something to try to remove herself, to clear her head and to have enough time and space to think. So some of my friends go for runs every day, some do yoga, some cook, some meditate. Uh, but I think all of us instinctively are feeling that something inside us is crying out for more spaciousness and stillness to offset the exhilarations of this Uh, movement and um, the the, the fun and diversion of the modern world. Uh, And what I do is probably pretty extreme Uh, and I'm maybe even close to being a Luddite, but I do live in rural Japan uh, without any media and with no TV, I understand, and until recently we just dial up internet uh, where I don't have a car or a bicycle or any means of transportation other than my feet. Uh, And I've never used a cell phone which I'm not proud of, but I managed happily to do so until, you know, 15 years ago I functioned in my mobile busy life without a cell phone, and I feel I can still do that uh, equally well now. And I suppose I really try severely and rigorously to ration my time online or in the midst of these beeping machines that seem to be moving more quickly than my mind can, so uh, I only go online at the end of my day, after I've finished my writing. And then I try never to spend more than an hour on all my emails. And beyond that, I really uh, am never online at all. So I've never been on Facebook and I don't tweet. And I can see all the wonder and the new possibilities of those, but I just don't trust myself at the mercy of them.
1: Right. Now, uh, since you mentioned uh, Facebook and Twitter, we have generations of young people who are growing up with uh, almost relentless text messaging and Facebook connectivity and, uh, you know, exposure to all uh, other forms of social media. Uh, what impact do you think this will have on their lives, especially their work lives in the future?
2: Well, I've got to admit that I'm talking to you now as somebody aged 55 who's more or less tethered to the habits of my generation and or that I grew up with, and I think if I were 16 now, I would be just as hooked on uh, Twitter and texting and everything else as all my classmates. Uh, And I think humans, in some sense, don't ever change, show a 16-year-old today we'll find ways to be just as as soulful and deep and contemplative in the midst of all these new tools as I do in the midst of my old tools. But, of course, the danger is that our attention span gets ever more fragmented. Uh, The more text messages we're sending and receiving, the less time and energy and thought we have to give to everyone. And just my sense is that most of us humans, when put in the way of temptation, nearly always lose out to the temptation. We're rarely strong enough to get the better of it. And so I find already that with my little laptop, I have the Library of Alexandria and six billion people in my room all the time, and it's very hard not to want to communicate with them and hear what they're saying and doing and just distract myself. And so if I had all the mechanisms that a 16-year-old has, uh, I'm not sure I would ever really uh, get an off-screen life. Uh, completed, And I suppose my feeling is that uh, if we can't read long sentences, for example, we won't be able to read one another. And if we spend too much time in this MTV rhythm, uh, it'll be very hard to, for us to cultivate those parts of us, such as understanding or empathy, that require more s- slowness. I was recently reading about one teenager here in California who sent and received 300,000 texts in one month, which is 10,000 a day or 10 for every waking minute of her month. And I was wondering if she had time to do anything in the way of living because she was so busily immersed in um, the text world. So I think every generation has its dangers and when I was young there were other new machines that were likely to... Take me hostage, but uh, so i don 't think the modern younger generation is worse off than we are, and in many ways they're better off. but I do think they have consciously to confront certain of these challenges and temptations we didn 't have to think about them and it 's interesting I was on a radio program a couple of weeks ago talking about this. And the host of the program said that his 17-year-old had just chosen to go off Facebook because she was finding it too overwhelming. And as we were talking, one young person after another called into the show and saying, uh, to say, yes, we're really having too much of this, and we're trying to find a way to escape it. And I, frankly, wasn't expecting so many kids, 18 or 20 or 13, to be so explicit about saying they wanted uh, to be away from these machines.
1: Sometimes people uh, justify this by saying that you know it makes people better at multitasking. I, I wonder if you feel multitasking is efficient or inefficient, and why.
2: Well, I, I know many people know much more about this than I do, probably both of you included. And there are surveys which show that multitasking loses you know billions of dollars a year, and that twenty-eight percent of an office workers. Uh, Time is lost through multitasking. Uh, Surveys have found that nobody can get more than three consecutive minutes free at her desk now in an office, and that the average website uh, is visited for only ten seconds. So all of this, to me, suggests that if you're trying to do many things at once, you can't really do any of them properly. And I'm not saying that really in a censorious way, but more just in terms of basic human happiness, because I know in my own life, My happiest moments come when I'm completely lost to a conversation or a scene or a film or a book or a piece of music and when I lose track of time and I have the luxury of continuity and I'm able to give myself up to talking with a friend, for example, not just for 10 minutes but for 10 hours. That's the great luxury and I think that's what makes me feel happiest and most whole. And so I think if we are multitasking and if we're uh, skittering on the surface of ourselves in in many places at once, then something in us is getting denied and neglected. And it's probably the best part of us, which is to say our, our soul. So I'm always interested in the possibility that as we multi- multitask and try to do more and more things at once, we're also actually achieving less and less. And at the end of the day, wonder why we haven't completed our to-do list.
1: And you know what you just said reminds me of, a, of something that happened when I was at a conference some years ago. And the speaker asked, uh, you know, uh, the people in the audience, uh, 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 how many of you are listening to me right now? And of course, everyone put up their hands. And then she said, how many of you also have your cell phones or Blackberries open in front of you and are also checking your messages? And at least half the audience put up their hands and she, she said, OK, so half of you are honest about it.
2: Uh, <laughs> and and, and these, are, these are adults. I'm sure if it were a classroom, the proportions would be even higher.
1: Right, and, and then she launched into the subject of her talk, which was continuous partial attention. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and 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 the point was that one of the things that was very striking about her uh, her her view was that uh, people are afraid of being disconnected, and and part of that is fear about the fact that. If you're disconnected from an information network, you may miss some opportunities that may be lost to you. Hmm. Uh, and I wonder what you think of that, and, and do you agree with that view, And and what might be some of the consequences?
2: I understand that view, though I don't necessarily agree with it. And I know I was just talking to one of my oldest, dearest, and deepest, most thoughtful friends last week in Washington. And he was saying, well, the fact of the matter is that if you have an office job now, you can't afford to be offline and you can't afford not to be answering emails, even though as fast as you answer them, new ones come in. So we've somehow worked our way into this corner whereby, as you say, we feel that we can't even perform our jobs, let alone lead our lives, if we're disconnected. Um, And yet this connectedness doesn't really seem to be Uh, sustaining us in the deepest way. So my own response, I'm in a luxurious position because as a writer, I'm my own boss and I can live far from the office. But I, so I disconnect myself fairly radically by spending a lot of time in a monastery where I have no access to email or telephones or anything other than silence and peace and clarity. And the rest of the time in rural Japan. And in some ways, (coughs) I feel that uh, being connected in the office is a little like standing two inches away from a wall, that you're getting instantly the excitement of all the latest information, but you have no way to put it in a perspective, to put it within a larger frame, to step, step back and really see its its consequences. It's as if we're all in Plato's cave addicted to um, breaking news on CNN, but we never have the ability or the chance to step mm-hmm back far enough to see what this breaking news will mean, or indeed if it's actually going to change uh, the world as we know it. And so I think the fear of being disconnected quickly translates into um, an an inability really to to see things in in the long term and to, to put them within a larger perspective. I think it's like the difference between being stuck in traffic when the radio is blasting and people are shouting and people are riding their horns. And then if you just step out of your car and climb up a hill next to the freeway, within about three minutes you can instantly see the larger picture in every sense and and you can breathe and you can decide exactly how you want to respond to it. But so long as you're in the middle of it and running to keep keep up with something you can never keep up with. You just end up rather fractured and dizzy and uh, unable, I think, to make sense of it, that we're we're in the midst of the trees and we can't begin to see the woods. So I'm in a curious situation because I am a functioning journalist and my job involves writing for Time Magazine and the New York Times and these other places who are giving us the news. But I feel somehow that I can best follow the news by living at some distance from it. And when something happens, I will hear about it a couple of days later in Japan, and I will consult the books on my shelf, which might be Emerson or Shakespeare, and I'll go for a walk, and I'll try to think about how it will still be with us, this new event, six months from now. And somehow I think maybe by doing that, one can get a different angle on things than from following every last commentary or blog on a screen.
3: So here's from somebody who's in definitely in the trees. And so I'm interested in your perspective on this because I, I think, at least from my perspective, and again, being amid all this noise, you know, that, that our very network world does have, can have positive force on the world. So for example... The, you know, the obvious one is the Arab Spring but I think of stuff like uh, you know raising money for hospitals that you know catch on like fire uh, some of this uh, citizen consumer advocacy stuff that goes on where you know a company will make some outrageous decision and then all the consumers will go crazy and they backtrack from it and so on and so forth but so, so I look at this and see this is oh this is amazing because without you know our highly connected world without our social media world um, none of these could happen but again I'm living a minute. So, is this just a kind of an illusion, in some sense, that you know this this highly connected world is having as much impact as we think it is? Uh, what do you think?
2: I I love your point, and and you're absolutely right. For example, I couldn't live in rural Japan on a tourist visa while my family and my bosses are in New York without technology. It's only uh, emails and before fax machines that allow me to live 6,000 miles from the office, and it's only planes that allow me to live a continent or an ocean away from my mother, but still to feel that she's only a few hours away if I have to go and see her. And the other thing I think that, I mean, you so wonderfully bring out in in your point is that uh, I'm speaking for somebody in a relatively privileged position and I think that especially I notice for those people who are very cut off from the world whether by poverty or politics or circumstance the internet and all the things we're describing are a huge liberation if we're in rural India today or Africa or a somewhat oppressed place like Burma or Tibet, uh, it's as if the machines we're discussing have thrown open windows that would never have been open for millions of people otherwise. And I think the more difficult your circumstances on this planet, the greater the blessing that uh, these machines have offered. Uh, Conversely, I think those of us who are lucky enough to be in a country like this and to have quite a lot of freedom and mobility already, uh, we... uh, We have to think a little more closely about what the machines are giving us and what they're not giving us. And I think there's an inherent disequilibrium almost in our thinking whereby whenever something new comes along, we're understandably excited and we see all the ways that it changes our life. But it takes us a lot longer to see things it doesn't change or the shadow aspects it brings along. And I think, for example, initially with cars and now with television, they've unequivocally um, expanded and liberated and bettered our lives. But nowadays, after a few decades of living with them, we can see that they're also posing challenges to us that we have consciously to answer, whether it's pollution or traffic jams or passivity in front of a TV. And I think one of the things that actually most excites me is my sense uh, that it's the people who are in the trees, as you said of yourself and who know most about technology, who seem to be most conscious of what technology can't do, who seem to be, I think, wisest about how best to use technology and how best to come to some balance between exulting in all the new horizons that's opened up for us, but not assuming that it alone can change our world. And so when I was visiting uh, the campus at Google, for example, like everybody, I was so impressed to see the meditation rooms and the trampolines and the play pens and the way that uh, that company makes sure that Uh, its workers have a lot of time free from the office because that's where the creativity takes place. And um, when I wrote a piece in the New York Times about quiet, I was impressed very quickly to hear from one of the leading voices of Silicon Valley who wrote to me and said, well, so many of us here observe an Internet Sabbath, and we're the ones who have helped to give the world the Internet and who've helped to to expand possibilities with it. But we also know that it's really important for us to spend a day every week or a couple of days offline so as to nourish ourselves and so as to be able to have the vision to see how best to guide uh, the Internet revolution. And um, I I was struck, too, that it was Intel that was the one that experimented with almost enforcing quiet time, four hours of uninterrupted time every Tuesday on 300 300 of its workers a few years ago because it realised that only by turning off the machines could they come up with the ideas that would make um, Intel a, a visionary company. So uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, I think it. I wouldn't. We wouldn't want to deny or forget all the benefits of technology. But uh, and I think, as I might have said before, I, I don't distrust. I just distrust myself using it. In other words, it's opened up this amazing candy store. It's just that I, when set loose in a candy store, never stop and then end up with a stomachache and a headache. So I think the challenge is not to uninvent invent technology or to reverse it or to wish it weren't there, but just to be very precise and conscious of how we're making the best use of it and, and, and the, what wisdom we're bringing to it so that we're not its slave, but we're its equal in its way partner.
3: Do you have any insights about why this stuff is so addicting? You know, as you said, you you hold yourself back from it.
2: I think it's because it's so fun and it's so tasty. You know, if somebody put a bowl of gruel or oatmeal in front of me now, I wouldn't begin to start eating it. But if somebody put a bag of tortilla chips with salsa, I would never stop, and then I would suffer the consequences. So the only reason that some of us are wary of technology is because um, it's so enticing, distracting, endlessly fascinating. You could, I think, choose any topic and get lost on it for weeks on end uh, in on the web. And so much of what you would be finding is really useful and would be impossible to find 10 years ago and actually does deepen one's thinking or or extend one's research. So uh, I think I find I'm only scared in life of the things that are really pleasurable because I don't know how um, to meet them out in a way. And I think the addictiveness is is a sign of its power and, and seductiveness. I think television makes us quite passive, but Internet technology
1: really engages us and often makes us very active. That's great. I I want to go back to the point you uh, mentioned a bit earlier about the the quiet time uh, at some companies. Now, uh, almost every company wants its employees to be innovative, and I wonder if you could uh, speak a little bit about what you think is the value of silence and solitude in encouraging creativity, which is so uh, critical to innovation.
2: Yes, well, in my experience, silence is where we come upon depth and spaciousness and uh, intimacy. And it's also where we find things inside ourselves we didn't know we had inside ourselves. So so when I'm uh, talking uh, superficially to a friend or answering an email or going through my round of activities, I'm really talking from the surface of my personality, and there's very little that comes out of me that surprises me. But when I'm in silence and I can collect myself, so to speak, and begin to sink slowly down through the depths of myself, um, it's it's an amazing journey into kind of outer space, except it's inner space, but uh, into these Uh, areas that i never would have imagined um exist and so i mean this all sounds very abstract but uh 20 years ago a a friend of mine here in california who teaches high school said that he took his high school classes every spring to a catholic monastery for three days and that even the most jittery testosterone adult hormone driven restless 15 year old californian boy only had to be in silence for a few days And suddenly he sunk into some much deeper, more spacious and actually happier part of himself to the point that after a couple of days there, he never wanted to leave. And so I went up to that same place, although I'm not a Catholic and although I'm not a hermit, and I did find instantly that silence was making me, as soon as I stepped out of my car, uh, there was this thrumming silence all around me, but it wasn't the absence of noise. It was the presence of something else. It was something very invigorating. And I walked straight into my little room and I began writing and I couldn't stop writing for four and a half hours. And since then, I've been 60, 70 times back to that monastery, sometimes for as long as three weeks. Uh, And I found that um, it's the one place where I can step outside myself and step outside my life and thus see better what to do with both of them and and what to do for the next six months and what my priorities are and what I really care about. Um, As in any situation, it's only by stepping foot outside it that you can really put it um, in the round and see it in the round and and see what direction you want to take it in. So uh, I think silence is both the sort of cradle of creativity and the one place where uh, you can see what to do with your noisy non-silent uh life and let's see i was just going to say something else that's right which is that i think in some ways i've always thought that the paradox of any technological revolution is that you 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 can only you need to go offline in order to find the wisdom and emotional clarity to make the best use of your online life Um, online is an amazing wonder world but you have to step Back from it in order to
1: see how to navigate it, and I think that's where um, silence helps. Right. Uh, many companies are also, you know, uh, like you uh, you said about Intel, uh, encouraging meditation as part of wellness programs. Uh, do you know of any evidence about what kind of results they have seen with this?
2: Uh, I think lots of great evidence. Unfortunately, I'm not an expert on this, so I haven't been keeping in touch with it. Uh, and I, I, Somebody just a couple of weeks ago sent me a wonderful story about Gandhi, who apparently once said, this is a very busy day, so I need to meditate two hours rather than one, which I think uh, has been my way of operating a lot. Uh, so I, I'm afraid I don't know the fruits of it, but I do spend a lot of time with the Dalai Lama, and he is an empiricist and a scientist. has been following and, to some extent, instigating a lot of experiments to see what are the concrete, secular, ecumenical um, fruits of meditation. And I think they found that in terms of compassion, peace of mind, and clarity, where they actually have been um, hooking machines up to monks and and registering their brain movements, they've found tangible evidence for. The fruits of it. To such an extent, I believe that in Wisconsin now, which is the centre of a lot of this research, 200 public schools have made meditation part of the curriculum. Because um, the same way they would make physical activity or uh, certain health exercises part of um, the day's activities, because they found that uh, it's uh, it's so invaluable for their students' health, whether or not those students have any spiritual or religious. So I think there's a lot of evidence out there, growing every year, um, and and research is being conducted in Wisconsin, Berkeley, Stanford, uh, Princeton. I think lots of lots of our universities, uh, Emory too, um, so that we have tangible uh, evidence for what meditation can do. And I say this as somebody who's never formally meditated myself, but I think if you're a writer, you're spending a lot of time sitting still at a desk, and it probably comes to something similar.
1: Now You've traveled extensively around the world. Mm. What have you learned about the way companies globalize their operations, and what could they do differently?
2: I'm very, very impressed by the way companies globalize. Uh, And it's it's easy... People, many people I know, are always criticizing globalization, and, and corporations are easy to find fault with. But I think that companies... by by shifting their product with each market, actually are making this a much more diverse world, that the world is not becoming homogeneous, that when McDonald's or Starbucks go to 100 different countries, in each case, the country takes that same formula and converts it into its own cultural context and makes it something radically different. So, um, for example, when I'm in Japan and I go to my local McDonald's, they're serving moon-viewing burgers in September at the time of the traditional East Asian harvest moon and chicken tatsata burgers and pear sorbets. And when I go to and McDonald's in India, they're serving chai and, and pizzas and mostly vegetarian dishes. And when I go to one in uh, La Paz, Bolivia, uh, they're serving something that, has a particular meaning to those people. And so, firstly, I don't think that the world is becoming one in that sense. And secondly, I think uh, in every case, these corporations are giving opportunities to other cultures that other cultures are wise enough to uh, convert into their own terms and and make their own. So uh, whether it puts Coca-Cola or Starbucks or any of the big corporations we can think of, uh, I think they're canny about how... Cultures are diverse and that many of us can learn from that wisdom.
1: Now, uh, capitalism, uh, you know, was built on the protestant ethic. As Karl Marx once uh, famously said, accumulate, accumulate, that is Moses and the prophets. Is this drive towards accumulation compatible with a worldview based on compassion and kindness?
2: Uh, it is compatible with it, but I think what most of us find is that <clears throat> beyond a point, once our material needs are met, we still have much profounder emotional and spiritual needs that material goods aren't satisfying. And that once you have three cars, most people are not necessarily liberated by the fourth or fifth. In fact, they may well be imprisoned by it. Once you have one house having a second or a third house, uh, in fact, it doesn't make you feel more fluid and mobile, but less so. And what I notice, um, in of course, it's the case in the West, but in my adopted home in Japan, and I think it's quickly going to become the case in China and South Korea and maybe one day in India, is that it's a wonderful thing when people can finally satisfy their material needs. But um, like us with the Internet, once they have access to it, most of us buy more and more and more and then wonder why we're still feeling so lonely or um, so directionless or so inert Uh, and finally we'll come to see that they can't answer those needs and we have to turn elsewhere um, to satisfy what are our most essential um, needs and when a loved one dies or when we get uh, a bad diagnosis from the doctor or when a fire burns down our house we quickly realize that the only things that are going to sustain us are Intangibles, and I'm always moved that when the Dalai Lama comes here to California, for example, he's often seated at some fundraiser in Beverly Hills, and people will ask him, how How do you manage to live um, with the terrible poverty there is in India?" And he will look around him in this room full of very, very affluent people and billion in in Beverly Hills, many of whom are seeing a therapist every day of the week and are on their fourth weddings or fourth marriages, and will say, "Well, there are different kinds of poverty." Um, And for sure, India and many countries have much too much material need. But um, psychological and emotional need can be even more paralyzing sometimes. So uh, I don't think accumulation itself is a terrible thing, and we all need enough to get by. But accumulation as an end in itself is probably short-sighted and and, um, is never going to satisfy us. So
3: one of the, you know, one of the things we've been thinking a lot about here at Wharton is our, our MBA curriculum and uh, just our business curriculum overall. You know, we teach 18 to 21-year-olds, we teach 27-year-olds, and we teach 33-year-olds and then executives. And, uh, you know, is there a place for, uh, you know, thinking more, thinking less about material goods and more about overall wealth in a, in a business program, do you think?
2: Oh, I think I think definitely, and I think some of what you've been telling me, and I've been learning from you in this conversation, points that out. The fact that businesses do try to make time for um, for, for meditation, for example. That I have a friend now at the Drucker School here in Southern California, whose only task is to teach mindfulness, um, just the way that Japanese corporations used to take all their employees to Zen temple for three days every year. For. Um, not just a corporate retreat, but I suppose an individual retreat. So I think, um, and all the notions that we hear now of gross national happiness, for example, I think all of these are useful correctives. And I'm, I'm thrilled that so many people in the business world are not just aware of, but actually encouraging um, these reminders that in some ways, affluence is not a matter of what you have, but what you don't lack. Um, and if you're... you're if your needs are satisfied, um, that is the ultimate state of affluence. Somebody with $3 million may still be starving for more, and somebody with a tenth of that amount may feel that he's living in an absolute stent- state of contentment, and that second person is really more more affluent. And I think businesses, and I'm guessing business schools, are, are very wise about that, and, and realizing that somebody who is just looking single-pointedly at um, the bottom line is probably not going to serve the bottom line as well as somebody who's got a, a wider perspective and is more conscious of invisible or intangible things.
1: So, uh, one, one final question is do you, based on what we said, do you think it's possible to be a so-called Zen capitalist? And if so, how? <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, I, I love that idea, and I think, um, I, yes, I think it's, it's not just possible but maybe desirable to have. Um, to have our inner and our outer wealth in balance and to um, both to be trying to make the world a more comfortable and, and richer and more exciting place, as so many of our technological pioneers have done, but also um, to see that fundamentally it's, it's our inner resources that are going to get us through. And I think one of the happy developments in the present moment is to see people like Bill Gates, who've used so much wisdom and ingenuity to make billions of dollars, now using that same ingenuity and, uh, and, and resourcefulness and determination to give billions of dollars away to the people uh, who are most in need of it. And I think probably many people might have thought of Steve Jobs as, as a Zen capitalist. And I think if you look at many of the people who in the 21st century are seen as models of worldly success... One reason we take them for models is that we feel that they have a lot going on inwardly and invisibly and that it's not just that they've accumulated the most tokens on the monopoly board, but that they, they radiate either um, happiness or clarity or peace or some, something that we envy. And I think that's why in a previous generation someone like Warren Buffett um, still holds such appeal to many people because he seems like uh, a man at, at peace with himself and, and uh, uh, despite and in the midst of his his great success and his riches. So I think uh, I think a Zen capitalist is probably what most of us are aspiring to because uh, we need the capitalism in order to take care of our loved ones and ourselves and have a comfortable life, but we need Zen to make sense of that life and to put it all in perspective. So... Um, I, I, love, I love that phrase, and, uh, and I think it's within the reach of all of us, probably. Great.
1: Well, P- Picoia, thank you so much for speaking with us.
2: No, thank you. It's really been fun.
0: For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.